I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and this is my 83rd Sermon on the Biblical Design of Gender, in which my point is that a woman appealing to a man is the design of male-female relationships. Didn't you have to appeal to your husband to get him interested in you in the first place? The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. Good morning on this beautiful Lord's Day morning. This morning we are going to examine some interesting concepts based upon the idea, which I did not state in the message, that a woman in a relationship is primarily responsible for the emotional life of the relationship. Now our text for the morning is Matthew chapter 15, verse 21 through 23, which reads as follows. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But Jesus answered her, Not a word. God bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. And now, our gracious and heavenly Father, be pleased to please let us preach your word, not for fame or for reputation, but to the end that some might be made better, that some might benefit, that some might believe, and that some might be saved. We thank you, Lord, for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and we ask you, Lord, to allow him to feed us until we want no more. In the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord we pray, amen. And I thank you for being with me here today attending church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. And our takeaway point in this series on the biblical design of gender is that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. Now, knowing whom Jesus is, don't you find it interesting when Jesus is not responsive to the cries of those who need help? Let us reiterate our text given in Matthew chapter 15, verse 21 through 23. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But Jesus answered her, Not a word. Jesus did not suddenly become deaf when the woman cried out for help. 
Jesus was ignoring her. The woman was not an Israelite, but was a Canaanite. She was not one of God's chosen people, and Jesus made that clear by ignoring her. Now John 3:16 and 17 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But although God sent Jesus so that the world could be saved, everyone in the world is not going to be saved. Revelation 21.8 tells us, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's quite a list of people that will suffer the second death. For someone that offers salvation to the world, God seems to have left quite a few people out of his plan. Revelation chapter 20 verse 12 through 15 tells us, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the book. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to his worth. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So the Bible tells us that the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the sexually immoral, murderers, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars do not have their names written in the book of life. When people that behave in these days reach the day of judgment and appeal to the Lamb, Jesus Christ, to have their names added to his book of life, they are going to receive the same reception as did the Canaanite woman requesting a healing for her daughter. Silence. Being ignored. Jesus not saying a word. And a lot of people are going to consider it a terrible day when they are faced with the silence of Jesus Christ. I imagine that they will stand before Jesus Christ pleading for his mercy and he will look at them with a face of stone. Then, as though looking through a television set, they will see a montage of their life, chronicling all of the opportunities that they had to satisfy the requirements for going to heaven that they scorned while they were alive. In what will seem to be an instant, 
they will review that which they did on the Sundays in which they were so uninterested in the message of the preacher that they slept through it or failed to darken a church door at all. They will look back at all of the mundane earthly activities that they considered more interesting than studying how the eternal word of God pertained to their personal situation. They will look back at all the times they ate the forbidden fruit of sin in specific disobedience to that which they knew God told them in his word. Every sin, every trespass, every idle word, every negative situation, all recorded, all reviewed, all analyzed, all acknowledged. All this while Jesus stands there looking on in silence. No encouragement, no consolation, no answer, no salvation. They will appeal to Jesus, but receive no reply except that of the deafening silence of the Savior. In the episode that captures our attention today, Jesus is giving that silence to the Canaanite woman that came to plead for her dying daughter. When Jairus, the Jewish ruler of a synagogue, had a similar situation, Jesus reacted differently. Mark chapter 5, verse 22 through 24 records, And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Why would Jesus be concerned with the synagogue's ruler's daughter while ignoring the Canaanite woman's little girl? Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6 through 9 tells us that which God spoke through Moses the lawgiver. For you Israelites are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you Israelites nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. After the great flood that destroyed all the people of the earth except Noah's family, God allowed Noah's descendants to fruitfully multiply until they began to build a tower at Babel that they intended to use to reach heaven. God thwarted their plan changing the languages of the various families so that they could not understand each other and then dispersing the people 
around the world. But God chose Abraham as the man through which he would spread his covenant to the world. And then God chose Abraham's son Isaac, and then Isaac's son Jacob, whose name God changed to Israel. Israel's son Joseph led their family into Egypt, and 400 years later, Moses brought Israel's family out of Egypt into the land that God promised to Abraham. The descendants of Israel are still God's chosen people to whom God sent his son, Jesus. But while Jesus was healing the sick and raising the dead in the land which God gave to Israel's descendants, this Canaanite woman came to him. Now listen to that which God told Moses and the children of Israel about the descendants of Canaan in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1, 2, and 4. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. God saw the descendants of Canaan as a threat to his covenant with the descendants of Israel, just as a jealous husband would see an unattached adulterous male as a threat to his marriage. So God instructed the Israelites to destroy the Canaanites because the Canaanites worshipped other gods. And Jesus responded accordingly. Jesus, being the Prince of Peace, did not destroy the woman, but he did reject and ignore her. Jesus is making clear in this episode that he is choosing sides. John 3.16 contains the phrase, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, to designate that although our salvation is a gift, there is still a criteria for receiving the gift and entering the kingdom of God. Jesus' disciples backed him up. In the B portion of Matthew 15, 23, his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. The disciples asked Jesus to send the woman away because she was making a scene. But you can imagine how a mother with a dying daughter would react if a doctor was in her presence but ignored her request to examine and treat her daughter. Imagine how you would feel if you took your sick child to the doctor and the doctor ignored your request for help. Now, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 and 6, the 12 disciples Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep 
of the house of Israel. God is sending his miracle ministry to convert the descendants of Israel while the other nations simply have to stand by and watch. And after the disciples asked Jesus to send the woman who was making a scene away in Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, Jesus answered and said to the woman, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Woman, you are not an Israelite. You do not have the proper credentials. Please go away. Jesus did not come here to help you. But the woman's daughter was dying. She was not going to let a little thing like ethnicity stand between her and her daughter's healing. And this was a wise woman. She did not lose her cool and she did not become indignant. She was suffering great disrespect at the hands of Jesus. First he ignored her, and then he said she was of the wrong ethnicity to help, but she remained calm. She was not a Jew, but she knew enough Hebrew scripture to understand, as Proverbs 15, 1 and 2 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. I was discussing relationships with a young woman, and she was telling me that she has a great deal of trouble in her relationship because she and her spouse argue all of the time. So I asked her, why do you argue? When she began to tell me of an episode between her and her husband, I gently stopped her. No, no, I said, that's not what I mean. I don't mean, what do you argue about? I mean, why do you argue? You see, it takes two people to argue. You can make statements to me, but you can't argue with me if I don't argue back. So my question should have been, why do you choose to argue? And I have a reason for asking my question. Do you think that arguing makes you more attractive or less attractive to your husband? You do want to be attractive to your husband, don't you? And if not, why do you want him to be your husband? If you really don't like him, why do you want him around? Most people want their intimate relationships to be pleasant. No one really wants to come home from work to an argument. So the first thing you have to do is stop arguing. Stop yelling. Stop getting mad. Stop arguing. You know, in my experience, it is a rare situation in which a woman can argue a man into doing anything. And this is true because arguing is not part of the designing relationships between men and women. 
women are giving the tools that they need to get men to do that which they reasonably want them to do, but arguing is not one of those tools. The Bible says in Proverbs 25 and 15, by long forbearance a ruler is persuaded, and a gentle tongue breaks a bone. So what is the point of arguing? Does it make your day better? Are you more sanguine and secure or secure in your relationship? Does it actually get anything done? How does it help you? God tells us about long forbearance and a gentle tongue persuading rulers and breaking bones, which means that patience, persuasion, gentleness, and seduction are a more effective force to get things done than arguing. Arguing leads to anger, and anger is not how women get things done. When a woman argues with her husband, love goes out of the window, and anger becomes the main thing on the menu. And no one wants to come home to an angry house for very long. Pretty soon, he'll stop coming home. After that, he'll start going somewhere else. Then comes the divorce. So what is the tool that God gives you? In Ephesians 5, 22-25, God tells wives to submit to their husbands and husbands to love their wives. The two instructions are intertwined. When a woman submits to her husband, her husband will love her and do virtually anything for her that she wants within reason. But wives argue because they want their way. Stop wanting your way all the time. God tells you to submit. Or if you can't stop wanting your way, use a more intelligent way like seduction to go about getting it because arguing is not going to do it for you. If arguing worked, arguing wouldn't cause your relationship to be in trouble. And the Canaanite woman knew this. She was born during a time in which older women taught younger women how to get men to do things. The old mothers understood the wisdom of Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, and chapter 25, verse 15, and taught their daughters that seduction is a more effective method to control a man than arguing, which doesn't work very well. So the Canaanite woman turned on the charm. She appealed to Jesus. Matthew chapter 15, verse 25 records, Then she came and worshipped Jesus, saying, Lord, help me. First Peter chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 tells us, For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Sarah 
called her husband Abraham Lord. Sarah acknowledged her responsibility to submit to her husband and obey him. As a result, Sarah could get Abraham to do whatever she wanted within reason simply by appealing to him rather than arguing with him. A woman that appeals to her man is not, as the feminists say, sucking up to him. A woman appealing to a man is the design of male-female relationships. And if you are married and doubt that this is true, just think back to the time that you weren't married. Didn't you have to appeal to your husband to get him interested in you in the first place? And then, when you became girlfriend and boyfriend, didn't you have to be appealing to him to convince him to give you that ring? Just think how your relationship would have evolved had you been nasty and snotty with him while he was courting you. Even if you thought you had him, I can tell you that he would have quit you. So being appealing is the basis from a woman's perspective of a male-female relationship. No sane man wants a relationship with a woman that is unappealing. And when men marry a woman who becomes nasty and snotty, they divorce them. Why would a man marry a nasty, snotty woman just to divorce her later? Well, men sometimes marry nasty, snotty women because they find them physically attractive and think that if they treat the nasty, snotty woman well enough, she will change. But those men aren't thinking clearly. If a woman is nasty and snotty during the courtship period, when the two are supposed to be so much in love, I can't imagine thinking that she will become less nasty and snotty after the courtship period when real problems occur. Being attractive is important because every person, male or female, contemplating marriage or involved in marriage should realize that trials and tribulations are part of life. And when you marry, you are picking a partner to go through the bad times with you as well as the good times. Were that not true, the wedding vows would not say for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. Worse, poorer, and sickness are part of the deal. They are spelled out not in the fine print, but in the big print. So men and women are looking for spouses that are attractive, not just during the better times, but also during the worst times. When things are worse, the world provides little comfort, and it may be that the only place in which a spouse can receive the comfort that they need to face the world is at home. Genesis 2.24 tells us, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. A major purpose of becoming one flesh with a spouse 
is to have someone to help you when things are bad. I am supposed to be strength for my wife when she has a pain or injury of some sort, be it physical or emotional. And she is supposed to be comfort for me when I have a pain or injury of some sort, be it physical or emotional. The point is not for us to argue one another into submission, but to simply follow the commandment of Jesus Christ as he tells us in John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So you ladies need to have faith in the passages of scripture that say that your desire should be subordinated to the submission to your husband. And you ladies should only accept a marriage proposal from a man that is properly prepared, physically, financially, and emotionally to be a good husband. If you then treat your husband with respect and submission, he will love you and do his best to make you happy and provide for you, even as Christ did for the church. And when Christ was here in the flesh, he made his church happy. Christ healed the sick and raised the dead, opened blinded eyes and unstopped deaf ears. Christ cast out demons, cleansed lepers, and fed thousands of folks with fish and bread after they listened to him preach. And this Canaanite woman knew that. She wanted to be part of the bride of Christ. So when Jesus told her that she was not and could not be part of the bride of Christ, she did what any woman that wanted to be a bride would do. She did not argue, but became more appealing, worshiping Jesus and asking for his help. And Jesus responded to the woman's appeal with an insult. Matthew chapter 15 verse 26 records, but Jesus answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The woman was a Canaanite dog. Not just a Canaanite, but a Canaanite dog. And not a big dog, but a little dog. When Marie and I left Pontiac yesterday, Marie's mother gave us some food to bring home. We had the dog with us, and when we reached home, I told my wife that the dog had gotten into the food. She said, no, he didn't. But then, as I was bringing the stuff in from the car, she recognized that the dog could have done so. As the dog was standing in front of her, she asked me, he didn't really get into the food, did he? No, I said, I was just messing with you. But she had her mouth fixed for eating some of that food, and had the dog gotten into the food, she would not have been a happy camper. But imagine how unhappy she would have been 
had I opened up the bag with the food in it and gave it to the dog, although she wanted to eat it. The woman's daughter was dying and she came to Jesus for help. Jesus first ignored the woman, then he told her that she was the wrong ethnicity to help, and then he said she wasn't worthy of help because she was a dog. A modern woman, entrained in the methods of influencing a man, would have bristled up and stomped off in a huff, saying to herself, I don't have to take that. I don't have to stand here and be insulted like that. But the Canaanite woman, trained in the methods of influencing a man, did not bristle up because Jesus had something that she wanted and she knew how to get it. The woman had a daughter, so Jesus was not the first man with whom she had had contact. And she was experienced in getting men to do things for her. So she continued to appeal to Jesus as Matthew 15, 27 tells us, and she said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. So she called Jesus Lord. She acknowledged that Jesus was her master. She acknowledged that she was a dog. And if an appeal of a woman to a man was not going to work on Jesus, the woman was willing to appeal to Jesus as a dog appeals to his master. Now John 3, 16 and 17 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son to, into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And in all her appeals and in her ability to suffer while being ignored and insulted while keeping her temper and maintaining her appeal, the woman proved beyond the shadow of a doubt that she believed that Jesus was Lord. Israel was and is God's chosen nation. But although Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, God had bigger plans than just Israel for the ministry of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul makes an analogy that the religions of the world are like wild olive trees and the religion of Israel is like a cultivated olive tree with God as the root. Romans chapter 11 verse 16 to 24 tells us, if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the Jewish branches were broken off, and you, the non-Jews, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the Jewish branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, Jewish branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural Jewish branches, 
he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fail severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the wild olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to the nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. So the world is like a big forest, with every religion being its own tree. The one true God is at the root of the Jewish tree and Jesus Christ has come to take those branches that believe in him from the other trees in the forest and graft them into the Jewish tree to receive nourishment from God who is the root. And the woman being a believer has just become a branch. In Matthew 15, 28, then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. John 3.17 tells us, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And as we believe in God's Son, we are grafted into the tree of life. Revelation chapter 22 verse 1 through 5 tells us, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were four the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They shall need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Jesus Christ died that our sins might be forgiven. He suffered on Calvary's cross that we might be grafted into his tree and bear fruit for the healing of the nations. So let us heal the nations by showing the love that Jesus commands us. Let us partake in Jesus' ministry and prepare for our eternal reward as Romans chapter 6 Verse 22 and 23 says, But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for grafting us into the tree of life 
because we know that it cost you your life to allow us in. And we pray that you would allow the spirit of love that motivated you to love us to help us to follow your command to love one another as you have loved us. And then, Lord, we ask you to help us live in homes of peace and prayer, not arguing and anger. Help us to realize that regardless of how poor our situation is, there are people right now lying on their deathbeds that would gladly trade places with us if they could only have the level of health and strength that we have, our interpersonal problems notwithstanding. So then, Lord, please continue to make us over in your image, letting us grow in grace and in your knowledge. And Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and thank God. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.